Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Estudar Direito Pelo Mundo, a podcast that uh, shares different experiences of uh, law students and law professionals uh, all around the world. Today, I'll have the opportunity to interview Fernando Loyosa Jordan, uh, who is um, who will be sharing a little bit about law school and licensing process to become a lawyer in Peru, uh, his LOM experience in the U.S., and also other educational ex experiences in Europe and also some brief remarks on his experience as a professor in India. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fernando. My pleasure, Claudio. Thanks uh, for having me. Thank you. Well, uh, to officially start this, I'll go ahead and read a little bit of a, your bio, okay? So Fernando is currently a doctoral candidate at Yale Law School and an associate profession, uh, professor of law at Jindal Global, Global University. He holds a master's of laws degree from Yale uh, Law School and a law degree from Pontifica Universidad Católica de Peru, uh, where he graduated summa cum laude. He also studied taxation uh, in the PUC Peru uh, LOM program, also public policy and taxation at the Universitat Popeu Fabra in Spain, uh, also international taxation and transfer pricing at the Leiden University in the Netherlands, and finally US law um, at the Columbia Law School summer program also in Europe. He has authored several papers in prestigious law reviews and chapters in books on a wide variety of legal and policy issues. He has served as a lecturer at PUC Peru uh, and at Universidad del Pacifico in courses related to taxa taxation and the interaction between economics and law. He has served as tutoring law at Yale Law School and a lecturer of the Yale Young uh, Global Scholars Program he was awarded the 2022 Teaching Innovation Project grant by Yale uh, Parvu Center for Teaching and Learning to build strategies to connect university classrooms with social leaders. His research areas include constitutional law, taxation, law and political economy, public policy, and law and economics. He started his career in private practice, working for several years in taxing consultant for big laws and PwC where he became a senior manager. After leaving PwC, he worked as an independent consultant on tax and policy issues for the Tax Justice Network as a researcher. He's currently focusing on his academic research. It's an amazing resume. And just to, to start uh, a little bit of understanding uh, some of your background, I'd like to ask you about your experience in Peru. I guess the, the first experience you had. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about your bachelor's program? Uh, how long is law school in Peru? Is it a bachelor's program? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to do it. Uh, so there is some variety within uh, law programs. Usually uh, the law degree, well, it, it's always a bachelor's degree, right? It's always an LLB. Uh, it usually lasts uh, six years. Uh, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Uh, in some universities, including in my own, you have one or two years of general studies before jumping into law. So in my case, I had two years of general studies that included sociology, philosophy, political science, anthropology, psychology, uh, and for two years, and then I jumped to four years into the law school. I took uh, an extra term because I went to study to, to Spain for a bit. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the structure. After you finish law school, you get your bachelor's degree, but that doesn't mean that you're a lawyer yet. You first 
need to go either through a thesis, you can do a thesis, or you can defend and present and defend two case laws, like, like two, two cases uh, that have already been solved by the Peruvian justice system. So you can pick between those. Most people pre pre prefer to present uh, cases. Uh, usually people that are more into academia or that they want to do, um, you know, a little bit, a, a little extra before uh, going to study abroad or doing some more uh, specific research, they prefer to do the thesis. In my case, I did the thesis. It took me like a year and a half. Uh, and after that, you receive your degree as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But that that is not the end of it. Then you need to incorporate to uh, to the bar association, right? Uh, in my case, to the Lima Bar Association, that's usually just bureaucracy. Like there is not a real exam or anything like you can find in the U.S., for example. So the real challenge is to get your degree as a lawyer, and then you have to go through the bureaucracy of uh, being incorporated to one of the Peruvian bar associations, uh, but that's very procedural, as I say. Okay. Oh wow, fantastic! It's it's very unique uh, way to do it, right? Uh, as I as I compare different countries, I'm uh, I, I see that there are some de definitely some differences to the Peruvian system, and that's amazing. I like to see those uh, in in different countries. Uh, well, moving forward on your experience in in studying law abroad and teaching it as well. I'd like to know, would you be able to share with us uh, a little more about your experiences in Europe? You mentioned you studied uh, as an exchange student in, in Spain during your, during your uh, university program. And then I know also there were some experiences in Leiden and Amsterdam. Would you be able to share a little bit about those with us? For sure. Uh, I think the biggest challenge for me going abroad was English. Uh, and I think that's a shared challenge by many people. Uh, at least in Peru, all your education, unless you ca you pay for very expensive private uh, high schools, your whole curriculum is on Spanish, right? You have an English class, of course, but your whole education is in Spanish. Your whole education in university is in Spanish. Uh, so even though you kind of learn English along the way, uh, you have never been subject to the experience of having to read legal material, uh, lengthy legal material or complex legal material in English. You haven't gone through the experience of debating in English, participating in English in a classroom. Uh, so I think that was kind of my biggest challenge. I was very used to being outspoken in class and I love debating, you know, uh, I enjoy seminars a lot uh, and we can talk about that later. Uh, and it was, I felt, you know, so uncomfortable in English. I think I still do, right? Uh, but uh, I think that was my biggest challenge. And I think that's the challenge for a lot of groups, right? I think, uh, in contrast with other Latin American countries in which you increasingly have your legal education in with English materials, uh, 
we are still uh, kind of behind in that area and uh, that faith that 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 becomes a challenge right um but go, moving forward from that challenge uh the experience was an eye opener uh for me you know like getting to meet so many different people from so many different places from every culture every religion uh so many different backgrounds um barcelona it's an amazing city of course and um and it was just such a a, a great life experience beyond the academic the academics and in the academics i think it's uh i think it was a great solid experience but especially i think it was a boost of confidence i think uh in some cases, Latin American students don't know exactly where they stand in the world in terms of uh, how smart they can be or how eloquent they can be or how much intellectual depth they have. Uh, you know, you can be the, you feel that you might be the best in your own country, but maybe outside, that's just not enough. Uh, and I think that's not true at all. I think in general, my experience has been that Latin American law students do great when they go abroad. Uh, there might be some difficulties regarding coming to a new place, of course, you know, like as always, moving yourself to a different part of the world can be tough, especially if you haven't done it before. Uh, but in my experience, Latin American students have always proven to be outstanding uh, when they go abroad, and they have always been able to compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone from any part of it. that that's amazing thank you so much for sharing that as much of the audience are really latin americans especially brazilians and and i do relate a lot to you on what you're saying on the english proficiency challenges a lot of people will will uh, talk to me and they will be like how can i practice how can i get better because I'm, i feel like i've reached a plateau and and really having this exposition having these opportunities uh, are the things that actually improve it. So it's kind of hard because you got to kind of jump into it without uh, being all ready and then you get ready on the way. But it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and if you... I forget, uh, Claudio, just it's also that if you are not, if you were not educated in English, you also need to realize that you will never have a, per you will never have a perfect accent. You will always commit mistakes with grammar, vocabulary, and so on. I'm teaching in English right now. I'm a law professor teaching in English. And I'm sure that I'm committing mistakes right now in this interview, as I'm sure that I have committed mistakes in my classroom today. Uh, and, uh, and that's completely natural. Uh, it's completely natural to commit mistakes. The important thing is to be able to communicate your message across. Uh, and you can do that with not the best vocabulary, with a thick accent, with mistakes in grammar, and you will get better along the time. You will get more confident as well, because a, a lot of, a, a huge part of it, in my eyes, it's confidence. You know, you feel like uncomfortable with it. I think the, the, the biggest challenge is to feel confident enough to make mistakes. And you will also realize that you are with a lot of other international students that they 
are also committing mistakes. And that has nothing to do with how smart you are, how good of a lawyer you are. They are all brilliant people. They just happen to have other languages as their mother thought, right? Uh, and I would go even further and say that you actually get a lot of respect from people in uh, US classrooms uh, because you are, let's say, competing with them in a language that is not your own. How impressive is that? You know, I, I think that's something that we should embrace. Like instead of saying, uh, oh, I'm not super comfortable with my English or my English is not the best, you know, take some pride on the idea that you are competing in the most, I mean, in the most competitive law schools in the world, in a language that is not yours, and you're still doing great. Thank you so much. That was that was really nice. Um, uh, I hope you guys, as you hear this, you you also take this to heart because it's it's really true, uh, and and I and I just love to hear that. Um, and maybe now, as as we go forward, and you just mentioned uh, about the best universities in the world. Uh, I, I'd like to go ahead and learn a little more about uh, this point in your career. Could you share uh, with us a little more of how uh, how you decided to go to Yale and, and a little bit of your motivation and decision to pursue an LOM there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was such a turning point in my life. Uh, I I had always been interested in, in academia. And after finishing law school, I always... Uh, I mean, I always wanted to remain in touch with that world. So I kept writing papers, publishing, uh, teaching, of course, not in an official, like permanent position, but as a teaching fellow, as an adjunct professor, right? Um, and I just loved it, you know? Like I love teaching. I love being in the classroom with students. I love feeling how much I learn from them. Uh, I hope that they are learning a little bit of, from me as well. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, you can dedicate yourself to reading what you like and to writing what you like, researching what you write, give yourself space to ask interesting questions and try to solve them. So I always try to remain in that world. Uh, but while I was doing that, I was also in private practice. Uh, so after I finished law school, I worked in PwC, in PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the big fours uh, in tax. So I, I I did my career there. I I left uh, a couple of years ago when I was, uh, how, how old I was? Man, I'm old. Uh, when I was 28. Uh, and I, 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 I really like it. I, I like the experience in private practice. But it was just not enough for me. And, and at some point, I felt that I wanted to do that transition to academia and uh, or to a more academic setting, at least. Because in Latin America, it's as you know, it's hard to be on academia full time. There are very few positions in which you can be an academic as a full time professor uh, because of the you know, the budgetary constraints that so many of our universities have. Um, so 
I wanted to do the transition and I decided that the best way of doing the transition is to, was to apply to an LLM. Also because by law in Peru, you need an LLM to teach uh, in universities, like in a law school. At, at least that was a reform that happened a few years ago. Uh, so given all that context, I applied. Uh, I was looking for uh, LLM opportunities and I really didn't had a lot of guidance, right? Uh, which it's also why I'm so happy to be part of this podcast and all the initiatives that have to do with sharing this information with people. Because there are a lot of very talented people out there that they just don't know where to start, how to do it. Uh, they feel that they're like, how do all these people apply to all these scholarships and all these programs? Like, uh, how do they get the information, right? And the sad response to that is that a lot of that is determined by the network that comes from family or university. Uh, if your parents went to study abroad uh, or if the, the friends of your family went to study abroad, you have a whole social capital behind that not everyone has. And no one in my family had to... Had, uh, had the experience to study abroad. Uh, and I didn't felt, I mean, I didn't have a lot of guidance, right? I saw some people in the university going for this. I decided that I should try it, but I was so afraid of not getting anywhere that I applied to 15 universities, uh, which was a lot of work. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Like 15 is too much. I mean, I always suggest, you know, you should have your backups. You should apply to several programs, but 15 is too much. Uh, but I applied because I didn't know how good my CV really was. Uh, I didn't know exactly what they were looking for. And also, I didn't know if I could get a scholarship because, as you know, uh, paying for an LLM in the US, it's extremely expensive. Like almost no one will have uh, the resources to pay for it. Like just, I, I don't know if, if, if the people that listen to your podcast know this, but uh, to pay for an LLM in the US, it's around $100,000. And very few people in Latin America have $100,000 in their bank accounts. So you have to go for these scholarships. Uh, so that's also why I applied to all these universities. Uh, but when the acceptance letter came from Yale, I knew, you know, that was it. Uh, for several reasons. Uh, and I don't know if you want me to go through that, but, uh, uh, or, or maybe I'm talking too much. You tell me. Oh, man, I'm, I'm loving it. If you don't mind sharing a little bit more of details, I think that would be great. Just mentioning a little bit of why Yale. Because I know that Yale has a, has a little bit of a different take on the LOM program than most of the LOMs that are more professional, living and less like academia oriented. So if you could like just share with us a little bit of that, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there are many differences. Uh, one of the main differences is what you are mentioning, right? Like people that go to Yale uh, are very academia oriented. Uh, so most people have already published, have already 
I have teaching experience. Uh, in my cohort, in my class, uh, more than half of people were already enrolled in a PhD or had finished a PhD. So the age is also, the average is older. If you see the average age at Columbia or NYU, for example, it must be like 23, 24. Uh, you have a bunch of people that came straight from their law degrees. In the case of Yale, the average of the LLM was between 29 and 30. I had, I started the LLM when I was 27 and I was one of the youngest ones. Uh, so that's a huge difference that I think provides uh, a, a, a lot, of, like it provides a lot of richness to the program, right? Like because everyone comes already after a lot of experience teaching, researching, writing, doing policy work, uh, practicing law, uh, and it's completely different, right? So whatever program you choose, my recommendation is always to look at the profile of people that you will have around you uh, to see if you are a good fit because a huge part of these programs is learning from your peers, right? So if you are into academia, you want to be surrounded by people that are in academia. If you have other kinds of interests, right? If you want to be more policy-oriented, Maybe you have you, you, you want to go to a program with people that had already the experience in the policy, right? Uh, so that's uh, something unique about Yale, the, the, the academic emphasis. Most people are in academia. And it's so oriented to academia that part of the scholarship that Yale gives you is conditional to the fact uh, of you teaching. So part of the, there's a conditional grant that becomes a scholarship if you go back to your country to teach. Uh, it's their way of incentivizing that everyone teaches, right? That's what they want to, like that's what they want uh, the Yale graduate to be, uh, an academic a professor. Not everyone does, of course, or but most people, they teach at least in certain capacity. Maybe not full-time professors, but at least they are lecturers uh, in some capacity. The other big difference, I would say, between Yale and other LLM programs is the numbers. The Yale LLM program is probably the, small, the smallest LLM program uh, in the world. Uh, at least from the well-known universities, right? So if you want to compare, for example, Harvard has like sends out between 160 and 180 offers. Uh, so that's a huge question. Yale usually accepts 20 something. So in my year, we were 23. Uh, that creates a complete, like a completely different experience because the group becomes much more closer. Uh, it's also that you are forced. I mean, forced is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad word, right? But the, 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 the context leads you to interact with everyone, right? So in huge programs, sometimes there is 
this tendency of, I mean, if you are from Latin America, you just hang with people from Latin America, right? Or if you are a tax person, you hang with tax people, right? If you are in a 20-something people program, you talk with people from all over the world and you talk with people about everything, right? So I was the only tax person in my cohort. And I had people doing crazy things about philosophy of law, about citizenship and immigration, about labor law, about corporate law. Like I was thrown into this very small, outstanding group of people that they all did different stuff uh, from very different methodological approaches, from very different interdisciplinary backgrounds. So you had people that had studied economics, people that had studied political science, people that had studied philosophy. I was one of the few only lawyers in the program. Uh, and that is a unique experience that you don't get in large classes. It also helps that if you are few in numbers, that means that you have more faculty for you. So that means that you will have, I had seminars that were like for five people. And if you want to reach out to a professor, that professor is always obviously going to have more time in a small law school, such as Yale, than in a large law school, as you can find in NYU, for example. NYU is huge, lot, lots of people. Uh, it, it's a still an amazing program. Like all Harvard, NYU, amazing programs, great faculty, great people in, but the experience is different if you are in a small group. And I'm sure there are uh, cons as well. You know, like there are some things that you get with large classes that you don't get uh, in small classes. So for example, you don't get other Peruvians in your class. You are usually the only one of your country because it's a very small uh, in my year, there was only one Brazilian, a very good friend, Nicole. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, advantages and disadvantages, for sure. I, I, I prefer mine, but I'm obviously biased. That's right. That's fantastic, though. I, I really see like how many benefits there would be to be in a small cohort. It's really amazing. Uh, and you know, uh, oftentimes we'll talk about the, the more like traditional degrees and, and don't go too much into academia. So I've had several speakers before talking about the JD programs and a little bit about the LOM. And then uh, you're the first person here who's having a SJD experience. So I also wanted to know a little bit about uh, how, how does it work? What is this degree that you're uh, pursuing? And also, uh, for if, if I researched it right, apparently... Yale will just intake SJD candidates who were already part of their LOM program, right? Uh, so this this is a very interesting thing. So could you tell us a little bit about this degree? Sure. Uh, the JSD or the SJD, depending on the university, uh, they call it differently. But at the end of the day, this is just a PhD in law. Uh, but it's usually a PhD in law that... Uh, like non-US lawyers go for because lawyers trained in the US already went through a, a already have a college degree, already have a JD, a Juris Doctor from the law school and if they want to go to academia they do a PhD but a PhD in something else 
So a PhD in philosophy or political science or economics or history. If you see the new generation of law professors being hired in the US, most of them have a PhD in something else. Uh, it's becoming a trend and as in everything, like every year, everything gets more competitive, right? Uh, so in I guess that in 20 years, you will need a PhD uh, with your JD if, uh, to, to apply uh, for a law professor position. Uh, but in any case, the, the, this JSD, uh, it's a doctoral program uh, that usually that changes a lot from law school to law school. So usually it's a degree that it's very oriented to research. So you should have a lot of time to do your own research. So you have a lot of freedom, right? Uh, in some cases, in some JSDs, you have one year of course load, sometimes two years, and then the other three years to do the research as you wish. Uh, on the other extreme, you have Yale, in which you have no course load whatsoever. You have five years to do whatever you want. Uh, you should finish a thesis dissertation or three papers, but the process that you go through is completely up to you. You don't even have to be in New Haven. Like I'm, a, I'm an example. I'm in India right now. Uh, I'm still writing <laughs> what I need to write to get the degree, but I can be whatever I want. So my first year of the JSD, I was in Lima actually. My second year, I was in New Haven in Yale. In uh, my third year, I'm here. Uh, and my fourth year, I still don't know. Uh, but I can be a Yale or I, can, I, I, I could be somewhere else. As long as I'm writing and as long as I'm communicating with my advisor and my doctoral committee and they are okay with my the way I'm advancing, it's fine. But again, this changes a lot from program to program. The requirements also change. As you've mentioned, Yale is kind of unique because they only accept LLMs from Yale in their application process. But uh, in other cases, it's not a requirement, like a formal requirement, but in reality, it's very hard to get a position unless you did uh, or either the LLM or some kind of fellowship research uh, position in the law school. So if you see Harvard, for example, the program at Harvard, they don't require you to do the LLM at Harvard, but 90-something percent of the people that get a position have an LLM from Harvard. And the others that they don't, they come from other top law schools in the world, right? So it's uh, usually the LLM is kind of a, a step before, like a natural step before applying to these uh, JSD uh, programs. And after the JSD, uh, some people, like you are in a good position to go to the international academic legal market. 
And that means being a professor in the US, which is the most competitive legal market. It can be very hard. Not a lot of people uh, can make it. But you have a lot of other places. You have JSDs that uh, are hired in Canada, in Australia. Uh, you can always go back to your own country, for sure. A lot of people do that, and they become professors in their own countries. There are increasing opportunities in places such as Singapore, Hong Kong, China, that they want to have a more international faculty, and they are pushing for that. You can, Ireland is also doing that. Netherlands are also doing it. So it's like it opens up for you uh, the international academia legal market, to call it uh, in some way. And then you choose, right? Or you can choose to, to, to go there directly, or you can do to maybe do a postdoc before applying for a permanent position. Uh, that is if you want to uh, continue in academia. Some people finish their JSD and they feel, ah, I want to do something more related to policy work so they can go to international organizations. Some people go to the World Bank or to the IMF uh, or to the United Nations or the OECD. Some people go back to their countries to do uh, policy work for their own governments. Uh, some people work for international NGOs. Uh, and some people even go to private practice, but that's the minority. Like if you have gone through the hassle of, you know, writing and researching five years, uh, you are usually not a very big fan of private practice. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if this is helpful. Oh yeah, most definitely. It's, it's very interesting because there is definitely, uh, I, I guess it really is like a funnel shape, right? Or a triangle where you have a lot of people who will do the regular law degree LB or, or the JD, and then less people will do an LM, and then like even less people will get to the advanced doctoral degree, like a GSD or et cetera. So it's it's just very nice to kind of get the understanding of how uh, a research uh, degree- And then it keep, keeps going because then you have to apply for a professorship. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So it, it definitely, uh, it's a very niche field in a way. Well, uh, I think those those informations were really like valuable to understand this uh, generally, and it's it's just amazing to have um, your perspective on it. Uh, I honestly really liked that you shared about you know the Latin Americans' place in the world and, and a little bit a little bit about English as well. I feel like that's really source of motivation. So just wanted to really thank you for taking the time to to share a little bit of the information with us today and. Uh, also, uh, keep the channel open for whenever you have uh, news to share or anything that you'd like to, to share to here. You're always welcome to do that. So thank you once again, uh, Dr. Fernando, for, for your time. <laughs> yes, Fernando. Dr. Fernando is my dad. I feel super old. So I, 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 I always ask my students not to call me professor or sir or whatever those things. Fernando is okay, and it's been my pleasure. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, and let's keep in touch, Claude.